the majority of what we're going to be looking at today in Exodus covers the tabernacle. Uh, we're going to see two sections to the tabernacle. We're going to see Exodus 25 through 31, where God is giving Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And then in chapter 30, uh, 36 through 40, we're going to see the people actually building the tabernacle, which almost is a word for word what we find in the verses before, or the chapters before. So in some verses, God tells them to build it, and then they build it the way that God tells them to build it. So you, you have a lot of overlapping scripture there. And then right in the middle of it, uh, in Exodus 32 and 3rd through 34, is the story of the golden calf. And that's actually what we're going to start with today is the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. So basically what we're going to talk about today is Moses ascends back up to Mount Sinai. If you remember last week when we left off, we had a covenant ceremony where Moses read all of the law to the people. They said, we will do everything. It was, it was sealed in blood, if you will, and Moses sprinkled the, the people with blood and the covenant was ratified. Uh, Moses and the elders go up and have a meal together, a covenant meal uh, with the Lord. And then Moses goes up to meet with God himself, and he's surrounded in the cloud of glory in the mountain, and he's up there for 40 days. And that's where we left off last week. And when Moses is up in the mountain, when he's talking with God, he's receiving these instructions on how to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle was basically a tent that is set up where God's presence would dwell among his people. But it's very detailed, and there's a lot of layers, there's a lot of items, and there's uh, a lot of, uh, again, more details that go into the building of this tabernacle that take up so much space here in the second half of the book of Exodus. But this is where God would dwell with his people. And... Um, and I was thinking about it last night, it hit me, you had the people that were wandering here in the wilderness and they had God's presence, a tabernacle that was kind of mobile with them. And then they get into the land and of course they're in the land permanently for a while, and, but it wasn't until Solomon, but yet they're in the land permanently and then Solomon builds a permanent residence for God's presence. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus establishes himself as God's temple. Of course, the temple that was standing in Jerusalem at that time would be destroyed, but Jesus has shown himself as God's temple in a body, and now through the New Testament church, God's temple is a body. It says body of Christ. So you had a mobile temple for a mobile people, you had a permanent temple for a permanent people, and then you had a body, God's presence indwelling a body in Jesus, just as he indwells the temple of the Holy Spirit which is his church individually as individuals having the Holy Spirit and corporately as a body. So there is, I like to tell people all the time when people say things like, well, they're going to rebuild a, a temple. And I said, there's a temple already here. Uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not, 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 in, not in some you know, figurative way. You know, if we believe the Bible, we are the temple. Ephesians 2 talks about that we are a holy habitation built up into a house of God to be uh, inhabitants of His Spirit. And God's presence dwells with us today. So there is a temple of God on the earth today, but it dwells in a body 
just like Jesus, God's Spirit dwelled in Jesus. And he spoke of himself and his body as the temple. So that just kind of popped in my mind last night, so I figured it'd be an appropriate place to share that this morning. But anyway, speaking of the tabernacle, this is going to be God's presence dwelling among his people. Uh, But yet this section here in chapters 32 through 34 it was looking like it was going to derail the whole plan. Uh, Moses' intervention with God keeps them on track. So in chapters, again, 25 through 31, we have the instructions for the tabernacle. We're going to look at 32 through 34 today. I'm not going to look at everything in the chapter because we got a lot with the tabernacle we have to cover this morning. So we're going to briefly just point out a couple of things here. But while Moses is speaking with God in the mountain, uh, the people below, they're doing a very bad thing. This is not what you want to do. Remember last week when we left off and we talked about the people saw the the mountain and it was covered with fire and smoke and God's thundering voice and they were so afraid. And Moses says, God is scaring you so that you will fear Him and not sin. Well, that theory didn't last very long, for as long as it lasted about, you know, 40-ish days, until they started rebelling and sinning and breaking the commandments. So they're doing a very bad thing here, and they go to Aaron, which is Moses' brother and the high priest-to-be, um, and they gather together around, uh, around Aaron. The word could also mean they gather against Aaron, and they convince him to build an idol, to make it calf. So he takes the gold that the people had had, and the people willingly gave Aaron this gold, and he forms a calf out of gold. And then once finished, he says in verse number 4, if we read in chapter 32, verse 4, he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they're not creating a second God. They're giving Yahweh an image, which is specifically breaking the second commandment that you shall not make for yourselves a graven image. Uh, You know, possibly breaking the first image, you'll have no other gods. But they, they formed this calf and they said, This, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar. You think if anybody would know better, Aaron would know better. But he builds an altar before the Lord and makes a proclamation saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast unto the Lord. So they're literally having another covenant ceremony with this golden calf. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So this is the worst possible case scenario of what could happen. And it almost ruins um, everything. But you've got God up on the mountain. He's meeting with Moses. Moses has been gone for an extended period of time. The people are like, well, he left a long time ago and hadn't come back. So let's just do our own thing. Let's create our own God. Let's do our own worship that is here. Um, Also, I have a note down here in the second paragraph under the golden calf, um, that this foreshadows 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, uh, when Jeroboam, who was a wicked king, he is setting up 
worship places, worship centers in Dan and Bethel to rival over against the worship in Jerusalem temple. And he makes, in 1 Kings, he, take, he makes two golden calves. And you know what he says? He says the exact same thing that is said here in Exodus. As Jeroboam says, Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So this is kind of the foreshadowing that we see played back over in uh, 1 Kings when Jeroboam makes two golden calves. So Moses is up on the mountain. He and God are talking. Of course, God knows everything. So he's going to alert Moses something really bad is happening at the foot of the mountain. And this is a very interesting conversation. You know, for me, being just kind of this thinker and taking in the Scripture as it, as it has, this, this is almost one of those head-scratching moments. Um, you know, almost like the moment back in Genesis where, you know, God's creation, and he's, he's relenting that He even made man. You know, if, but, you know, part of you thinks, well, if God knows everything, He knows what was going to happen, but you almost have God reacting in this moment. But here you have a very interesting conversation between God and Moses. And to me, this, even still to this day when I read it, even though I know, you know arguments for it and things like this, it's still just kind of a head-scratcher, you know, this conversation. So in verse number 7 of Exodus 32, the Lord says to Moses, notice the wording. The wording is very interesting. Go down for your people, not my people, your people who... You brought out of the land of Egypt. Not me, you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Have corrupted themselves and turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, that I may make a great nation of you. God is ready to scratch the whole plan. The whole plan. First of all, he's not taking any credit for these people whatsoever. Not like it was his idea to deliver them. Not like it was his idea, you know, not, 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 not like he rescued them out of Pharaoh's hand, that he parted the Red Sea. This is all Moses. These are your people. You brought them out. They're stiff-necked people. So leave me alone that my anger is going to burn hot against them. I will consume them, and I'm going to start over, and I'll make a new covenant with you, you know, that I will make a great nation of you, just like he told Abraham, I'll make a great nation. So it's almost seeming like God's like, I'm getting ready to scrap the whole plan and start over. And that's God speaking. And Moses here is going to be the voice of reason to God. So notice what Moses says. Moses employed, uh, implored of the Lord, his God, and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot? against your people. Moses turns it back on God. Your people, who you, God, have brought out of the land of Egypt. So now they're pointing fingers at one another, and it's Moses who's talking sense into Yahweh. This is just one of those head-scratcher moments in the story. 
He says, why should, and then he, then he gives these reasons. Here's why you need to calm down, God. Why should the Egyptians say? He says, if you do this, think about what Egypt is going to say. They're going to say, with evil intent did Yahweh bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. You know, basically, you're going to look foolish. You defeated their gods. You, you defeated their, their army. You freed this people. And now you're going to kill them in the mountain? And the people in Egypt are going to think, what kind of God is, is this? So here's what Moses says to God. <laughs> he tells them to repent. Literally, he tells God to repent. He says, at the end of verse number 12, Turn from your burning anger. That's what repent means, to turn from your, turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or Israel, your servants. Don't you remember the covenant that you've made? So he tells God three things. Turn, relent, and remember. You know, so now God, Yahweh, is getting preached to by Moses, who God even tried to kill earlier, if you remember, way back after he called him. He was going to try to kill him way back. So this is, it's just head-scratching things. It says, who you swore by your own self and said to them, now he's telling God's words back to him, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land have I promised. I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14 and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses gets Yahweh to repent and relent. So Moses talks God down from the ledge. He's not going to consume everybody and start over again. His anger is calmed a little bit. Then in verse 15, Moses goes down from the mountains with the tablets of stone uh, that God had wrote on there. Uh, look down in verse 19. Now here's Moses, okay? Moses, the calm voice of reason. Moses in verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Now Moses, you know, he just said, God, why is your anger burning hot? Calm down. And as soon as Moses goes down, he has burning hot anger, just like Yahweh just had. And maybe Yahweh would have said, see, I told you, you should have let me do this. And then he threw the tables, the tablets out of the hands. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf. He burned it with fire. He grounded the powder. He scattered it on the water. He made the people drink of the water and Moses said to Aaron, why did this people do such a thing? And Aaron basically just says, well, hey, you know, they, he, he doesn't, I mean, he just tells them what happened. So uh, again, Moses, if you go down to verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp. He said, who was on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gather around him. Uh, verse 27, he tells, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side Go to and fro from gate to gate through camp, and each of you kill his brothers and his companion and his neighbor. So there's going to be a mass killing. You know, I thought we were relenting from that. 
Uh, and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So when Moses comes down, his anger is hot. He breaks the tablets, throws them in the water, grinds them up, makes the people drink of it, gets the Levites and tells them to go and slaughter many of their brothers of Israel. And that day, 3,000 men died. And then this is almost seems like it's a training because he says, now today you, Levi, has been ordained for the service of the Lord. And thus the Levitical priesthood is born. They are blessed with being priest unto God for killing 3,000 people. So, I mean, I mean I'm just going to be honest, okay? Some of this stuff is a head-scratcher uh, to me. Uh, for the Lord bestowed a blessing upon you. Uh, Moses goes to the people. You've sinned a great sin. Let me go up and see if I can make an atonement. So then Moses goes back up to God, uh, and he says, Please blot me out of your book. Uh, verse 33, Moses says, Whoever... Uh, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. Go lead the people to the place that I've spoken to you. My angel shall go before you. Uh, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. We read about the angel in the previous chapters that will go before him. And then, I guess just for good measure, the Lord sent a plague. Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf uh, the one that Aaron made. So there is a lot of stuff uh, that's going on. And then in chapter 33, I mean, we could go on. We're going to leave this soon. Uh, Yahweh says to Moses, it's time to get up and go into the land. You know, it's time to get up and go into the land. I'll send my angel before you. Uh, and then the funny thing is, in verse number 3 of 33, God says, I'm going to send my angel before you. Get up and go. Uh, I'm not going to go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. God says, I'm not making a journey because you're going to tempt me to kill you all again. Um, and then, of course, Moses goes into the tent of meeting and he says, God, if your presence doesn't go, we won't go. And um, everything starts to get okay. Uh, they fashion uh, new tablets of stone. The covenant is removed. Moses' face is shining in, in chapter 34. So we have a very tense moment uh, here where there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and this moment uh, had the potential to derail everything that's happening here. Um, but, you know, after some violence, your cooler heads prevail, uh, and we're back on track with building the tabernacle. So, um, yeah, just, just, just some interesting reading there. Again, to me, some of that is a head-scratcher. I've read all of the, you know, all of the uh, apologetics to all of this and, and mentally understand, but sometimes when I go back and read it, I'm still just like, this is interesting, you know, what's, what's going on here. So it's, it's one of these things that we... We have here, uh, welcome to the Old Testament, you know, welcome to the Pentateuch, you know, where these things uh, happen. So that's our interlude from 32 to 34. We almost got off track. Now we're back on track. Okay. The chapters before from 25 to 31 and the chapters after from 35 to 40 speak of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, again, is this tent that will be erected in the wilderness. There are many parts to it that we're going to look at. And this is where God's presence will dwell among his people. Um, so I've got uh, on the back of page one, I've got a long outline. We'll look at that in a minute. Then you see there's a page that says keys to the tabernacle. Uh, I want you to skip that page. And I want you to go to the back of that second page where you have a picture of the tabernacle that looks like this. Um, and let's take a brief overview of what a tabernacle 
is. Um, I actually found if you, uh, if you're, um, see if I can get the name, I'll get, I won't take time to look at it now, but I stumbled across a YouTube video yesterday, and it's interesting, kind of out in the wilderness south of Israel, uh, kind of north of uh, one of the Red Sea, there's actually at the foot of a mountain, a full-scale replica of the tabernacle. Uh, And one of the things about the tabernacle is not as big as you would assume. You would think with millions of people around you and camped out. Uh, It's not a very large tabernacle. It's only about 150 uh, feet long total from fence to fence. Uh, But it's neat that down there in Israel, kind of in the wilderness, the area they have um, uh, the full-scale tabernacle that stays down there. So look, just looking at these pictures, you see the top picture. Uh, the top picture of uh, the tabernacle has a fence around it. It's fenced in uh, with poles and crossbars all in the, all in the fencing. And then there is, uh, on the east side, there is a gate, which is the door. This is the entrance into the tabernacle area. So you've got the fence around it. Then you enter in through that, that only gate, the only way to get into uh, the tabernacle area. And then you have three areas to the tabernacle. You kind of see there's the outdoor area. That's what you call the outer uh, court. Uh, and the outer court has two pieces of furniture in it. It has an altar of sacrifice where you made burnt offering sacrifices uh, that's made of bronze. And then you have a wash basin where the priest would wash after the sacrifices, and it's made of bronze as well. So in this outer court area, you have two items of furniture. You have this uh, bronze altar in the, the, the washing area. Then you have the, the tent. This is the tabernacle. You have a, a tent. It's not a very big tent. It's kind of a small tent. And this tent has two rooms in it that is separated by a veil. In the bottom picture, you see kind of in the middle of the tent you see that is a veil, it's a piece of cloth, a curtain, uh, that is uh, between two areas in the tabernacle. The first area in the tabernacle, this is known as the inner court or the holy place. And there are three items of furniture in there. There is a lamp stand, and that was the only source of light in the tabernacle. Uh, there is a table with what is called showbread, or it's called the bread of presence. And it's always to keep cakes of bread on the table. And then there is an altar where the priest would burn incense. So you have this inner court. And then you have the veil. And behind the veil is what we call the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant is a little box. You know, it was, it was a little box. It wasn't very big, just a little box. Uh, the items were placed in there. First of all, the tables were placed in there. And then a jar of manna would be placed in there. Uh, and then Aaron's rod, that will bud that we'll talk about, uh, that would eventually be placed in there as well. And on top of the ark is the lid, which is called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, there are two cherubim that were fashioned. Uh, and it's in this area of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that the high priest would go once a year beyond the veil and would sprinkle the blood of atonement on the mercy seat. And when God would see the blood on the mercy seat, He would see His people through eyes of mercy because the blood had made an atonement. And God would have mercy on His people. He, their sins would be forgiven. The sins of the nation would be forgiven for the year until the upcoming next day of atonement. 
Now about the tabernacle, we're told that the tabernacle on earth, the earthly tabernacle, was fashioned after a heavenly tabernacle. So we have a heavenly tabernacle that was the blueprint for an earthly tabernacle. And Hebrews talks about the difference. Hebrews talks about Jesus being a high priest that took the blood not in an earthly tabernacle, but into the heavenly tabernacle to present it before God. And so when we look at a heavenly tabernacle, what Jesus did for us, and getting ahead of myself, but it's okay, uh, Jesus took his blood, put his blood on a heavenly mercy seat, and that is how God looks at his children today through eyes of mercy because he sees the blood. It's like we're down here on earth and he sees the blood applied through the mercy seat, Jesus' blood, who doesn't run out after a year or doesn't run out after you sin. He sees us. That's how he looks at us through the mercy seat that is covered with the blood of Christ. And that's why I try to get people in the church to see because, you know, as Christians, we all have this idea of, you know, God is still this angry God in in the Old Testament that strikes us dead, that's holding our sin against us, that's waiting to judge us, that's giving us karma for what we do, that's sending sickness and all of these things if if we're not walking right. But we have to see that's not how God is viewing. You have to see how God's viewing us through tabernacle, not an earthly tabernacle, which had human limitations, very limited but through a heavenly tabernacle. So through the new covenant, when God looks at us, his children, he sees us through a blood-stained mercy seat with the blood of Jesus. And he looks at his children and can not look at his children through anything other than the mercy seat. That's our standing before God. Now, he knows that while we're still on the earth, we still do, do sin. So the Holy Spirit is here to help lead our way. Why? Because sin is still destructive. Not because God is out to destroy us, but because sin has built in consequences and it has built in repercussions and sin is destructive to God's people. So he sees us through the mercy seat. That's our standing before God. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to produce his life and his righteousness in us so that we can walk in accordance to who we are in Jesus Christ. So the heavenly tabernacle is a blueprint and a pattern for what Moses was to build here. The earthly ones had limitations. It had an earthly priesthood. It had had earthly uh, sacrifices. Uh, You know, it had earthly regulations, but not so with the heavenly sacrifice Uh, or Jesus' sacrifice, with Jesus being our high priest, not according to the Levites, but according to a new priesthood that Jesus, that God established through Jesus, unto a heavenly temple, a heavenly mercy seat, into God's presence itself, beyond the veil, which is Christ's life. So we see so much symbolism, and it would be great to go and read through those chapters, you know, chapters 7 through 10 in Hebrews, and try to pick up and pick out on this tabernacle language in there. So that was supposed to come later, but anyway, just kind of flowed out. So this is the basic structure of the tabernacle. You've got an outer court, inner court, a most holy place. You've got this gate that goes in. You've got the furniture outside. You've got furniture inside. And then you've got the Ark of the Covenant, which was the centerpiece of all of the tabernacle. So this is kind of the picture that we get in our minds. Okay, let's go to the next page of pictures. Next page of pictures. 
uh, that says the tabernacle pattern of worship. We're not going to read through all of this. Um, I got this out of uh, Rose Publishing's guide to the, the tabernacle uh, because I just wanted to highlight each piece of furniture with a visual. With a visual. So first of all, again, you have the bronze altar. This was made of brass. You'll find that the uh, two outdoor items are made of brass. The bronze altar is where you come to first. If you notice here the size, and I chose this because it has the size of seven and a half feet uh, long by seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall. Just kind of give you an idea on the, the size of where the burnt offerings would take place. So this is where the priests would make offerings here on the outdoor burnt offerings. Beyond that is uh, the bronze basin where you would wash uh, and the priest would wash from the brass. Uh, indoor, you have number three here, you have a golden lampstand. Uh, the lampstand uh, and all the indoor items here in the holy place are not brass, they are gold. They are made of gold. Uh, and the lampstand here um, is made of gold. It's the only light, or it's called the menorah, uh, the only light that we have in the tabernacle. Then you have a table with showbread where Aaron and his sons place 12 loaves of bread, the bread of presence made from fine flour there, so they would attend there to the table of showbread. Uh, you know, again, a, a, a three-foot-long table by a, a foot and a half. So not, not a very big, this isn't massive, elaborate things. It's meant to be picked up and moved to the next place. Uh, we don't have dimensions for uh, the golden lampstand, and we don't have dimensions uh, for the bronze basin. We don't have dimensions for those. Uh, but there is for uh, the other pieces of furniture. On the back of that page, you have the altar of incense. This is a foot and a half foot long, foot and a half foot wide by three foot high. Um, where special incense was burned constantly on the altar of incense. Um, and that would go up before the Lord. Then again, you have the veil. The veil was at least 15 foot wide. It was made of colorful fabric. And this is what separated the holy place from the most holy place. The holy place, the priests could, could work and do their daily duties, but they could not enter beyond the veil into the most holy place, except for once a year on the Day of Atonement. Well, we know when Jesus was on the earth and the temple was standing, there was a veil still that separated the holy place. And you know, we read about when Jesus died, the veil on the temple was rent, it was torn in two from top to bottom, showing that there is no more separation between man and God. All men have complete access unto God and unto His presence. Um, so very significant there with the veil. Uh, the veil, we're also told, uh, kind of represents the body of Jesus, that He's entered by a, we enter by a new and a living way through the veil, which is the body of Jesus. So we enter into God's presence through what Jesus has done for us on His work on the cross. Then we have, number seven here, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Uh, so again, the Ark of the Covenant here, uh, three and three quarters foot long, two and a quarter foot wide, uh, two and a quarter foot high. So, you know, it wasn't very big at all. It was a simple place where the mercy seat's on top, and this is where God's manifest presence would 
be. And this is how God would dwell among His people, that this Ark of the Covenant. And, and, and as you notice, there are you know, certain poles, you know, so you, you were to carry it a certain way. You know, all of those instructions are, are in there. Um, on the next page, the next page you have the garments um, of the high priest. I'm thankful this didn't carry over to New Testament pastors. That would that, feel kind of silly wearing that on Sunday mornings. But anyway, you have the garments of the high priest. Uh, and they had a breastplate with 12 stones on it, 12 tribes of, of Israel. They wore ephods and robes and tunics and undergarments and outer garments and you know, things on their heads. So it's very elaborate. You'll re- read all into that. And then at the bottom of that, you just have kind of the tabernacle layout again with the tribes that were around it. Uh, so when the tabernacle was set up in the wilderness, uh, you had, you know, you see the three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle would be the center of the camp. Center of the camp. Um, all right, let's go back to the first page, the back of the first page, to look at our outline. The first page to look at our outline. This is our outline between Genesis, from Exodus 25 and Exodus 40. So again, when you're reading, this will just kind of give you an idea. And of course, if you have a good study Bible, it should have headings up there that will tell you exactly what you're reading in what section. Uh, so we're just going to kind of look through some of these. Starting out in Exodus chapter 25, uh, you have the offerings for the tabernacle, you know, how things were going to get started. The people were to bring certain items that they had and they were to contribute gold, silver, bronze, purple, scarlet yarns, all kinds of yarns, all kinds of linens, uh, goat hair, ram skins, acacia wood, oil. So these are all of the collection of the the offerings that um, they were supposed to take up for all of the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, Then you have the ark from Exodus 25.10 through Exodus 30 or through Exodus 27, here's what you have. You have the instructions for the ark, Exodus 37, 1 through 9. Uh, then in chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, 25. Here's what we have on our paper. On the, on the left-hand side here, that's the chronological scriptures, starting with Exodus 25. And then we have, you notice we have like the table, the offerings for the tabernacle. And then beside that, I have another scripture reference, Exodus 35. That's the corresponding reference. Because like I said, the first part has to do with God giving Moses the instruction. The second part has to do with the people build it according to the instruction that Moses gave. Um, a lot of this is almost word for word because they're building it exactly as God said. So when he said, it says, build the ark three cubits, da, 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 then they built the ark three cubits. So you have some repetition there, but it's not repeating the instructions, it's them actually doing it. So on the right-hand side references are where it shows back up in the later chapters of Exodus. So in Exodus 25.10, you have the ark. Uh, in Exodus 25.23-29, you have the table of showbread. Uh, 25, you have the lampstand. Then in Exodus 25.31-39, uh, and even going on down, you have the tabernacle. Uh, which is, contains instructions for the curtains, the loops in the curtains, the gold clasps to fasten the curtains. You have a covering that's to put over it. 
uh, for protection from the weather. Frames, it tells you how to build the frames. Uh, the basis for the frames, it talks to you about how to build the, the basis for the frames. Um, the crossbars, there are crossbars. Then the curtain for the Holy of Holies, the entrance curtain, the hooks, the post, and the basis for the entrance curtain. So it goes into all of these details of how you construct the tabernacle, going down to the very clasps that fasten the curtains together. Um, so that takes us, uh, and that reference, I know these two references are the same, that should not be the same. Uh, what you have here is chapter 26. So if you have a pen, you might want to mark the where it says the tabernacle, and I have a second, Exodus 25, 31 through 39. That should be chapter 26. All of that takes place in chapter 26, so user error there, chapter 26. And then when coming into Exodus 27, you have the uh, bronze altar for burnt offering. Also in 27, you have the outer court, the courtyard. In 27, 20, and 21, you have the oil for the lampstand. Then when you get to Exodus 28, you have the priestly garments. The priestly garments made of the ephod, the breastplate, and then other priestly garments. In, chapter, in Exodus 29, you have the consecration of the priests. Uh, Exodus 30, uh, it starts with the altar of incense, uh, atonement money. Then you have the basin for washing in Exodus 30, 17 through 21. Uh, you have the anointing oil and the incense. Uh, and then you have God choosing two people, uh, Bezalel and Oholab. However you want to say that for us. Z, how do you say that? Aholiab. Aholiab. There we go. Bezalel and Aholiab. Yeah, there we go. We'll go with that. Call them... And they are chosen as skilled workers. So God gives them special skills in constructing and building the tabernacle. So God says, choose these two to build. And then you have the ending account there in Exodus 31 with the instruction for the Sabbath. And then after Exodus 31, then you have your break with the account of the golden calf in chapters 32 through 35, which we covered. And then you come back in chapter 35 and you start with the Sabbath where you, we left off in Exodus 31. Then you have, again, the offerings that were collected for the materials of the tabernacle. So everything we're reading now is what they did. Before was instructions, this is what they did. So we have them collecting offerings. Then we have uh, these two gentlemen that are chosen there. Moses chooses them. Uh, then, we have, then you go through all the tabernacle furniture again. You go through the ark. Go through the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the burnt offering, uh, the basin for washing, the courtyard. All of that is contained from chapters 37 through 38, 21. Then in Exodus 38, 21 through 31, you have a listing of the materials that were used. In Exodus 39, you have the priestly garments that were completed. In that chapter, you'll find the ephod, the breastplate, and other priestly garments. Uh, then the work is completed. In Exodus 39, uh, verses 32 through 43, the, Exodus, uh, the tabernacle is completed and Moses inspects the tabernacle and um, it is done well. And Moses blesses them as they have 
uh, finished up the work on the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, going through 1 through 33, the tabernacle is set up. So they go up to the details of them setting up the tabernacle. And then in chapter 40, 34 through 38, we have the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. So let's read that uh, in chapter 40. If you want to look in your Bible all the way to Exodus chapter 40 through 34. We have the glory of the Lord filling the house. So they do all the work. They fitly put it all together. Look back up in 40, verse number 32. 32, when they went to the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate at the court. So they start from the inside, the Holy of Holies, and they work outside. That's a good picture of Christian salvation there. You start with the inside and it works its way out into our lives. Uh, then he erected the courtyard, the tabernacle, the altar, put the screen up of the gate of the court. And I, I just love these words. So Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. That reminds me of Jesus finishing the work on the cross of salvation because that's what the tabernacle ultimately pictures. It's, it's, it's the worship. It's the work of Jesus. It's God. It's Jesus Himself. And Moses finished the work. Then in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So you end Exodus on a good note. You end Exodus on a good note. Where the glory filled the temple fulfills the tabernacle. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. And to me, that's just a kind of a serenity ending here. In the sight of all the house of Israel, tabernacle, cloud by day, fire was in it by night, and all the journeys of Israel throughout all of their journeys. And thus we have the main purpose of God delivering His people out of Egypt, bringing them to the mountain. It was to give them law, Torah, and tabernacle. The tabernacle, God's presence, has been set up among them. They finished the work, and um, God's presence will be on there with their journeys. Um, if you will, go to the very last page of our notes. I put down here some of the symbolism. Uh, when, when people do a lot of reading in the, um, in the tabernacle, one of the unique features, y'all thought we were done, we're not done, <laughs> is the symbolism in the tabernacle. Obviously there's, and we're not told straight from Scripture, this is the symbolism in the temples, but there are things throughout the years people have kind of seen the tabernacle and you know, put the symbolism in there. And this is just some of those 
uh, some of that symbolism that I will just share with you uh, as we look at the symbolism of the tabernacle, the symbolism of the furniture, the symbolism of the materials. Um, and, and I didn't put everything, you know, there are some things I've read that go through every detail, even down to, you know, the width and the length of all the things, what they mean. You know, I'm not interested in drowning in that much symbolism. Um, I'm good knowing that the tabernacle is Jesus uh, and his work for us. But anyway, we'll put down, because there are some interesting parallels and things that we see here. First of all, the three sections. There are three sections, as we said, outer court, inner court, and holy of holies, or the most holy place and the, the holy place. But there are three divisions to the tabernacle, the outer court, inner court, and the holy holies. I, I don't have to tell you how important threes play in all of the Bible. You know, numbers have meanings, and numbers are significant. Three, seven, forty, ten, um, 144,000, 1,000. You know, we have numbers that are used all over the place, uh, symbolic. You know, even when we look through genealogies, there were 10 generations in this genealogy and 10 generations here. You know, and, and some of those things aren't just coincidence. You know, it's, it's therefore specific. You know, Moses is up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is, is in the wilderness being tested of the devil for 40 days, you know. Uh, the, the number of days the water was on the earth after the flood. Everything has meaning, and you see these repeated over and over and over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation. You just have this symbolic nature of numbers that are used. And, you know, obviously the number three is important. Jesus rose on the, the third day. Uh, there are so many instances for threes. Here's some division for threes that we have. Obviously, Father, Son, Holy Spirit comes in threes. Uh, mankind, body, soul, and spirit comes in threes. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life comes in threes. Uh, the three major feasts in Israel where everybody had to travel was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Um, even the journeys through that we looked at in Exodus, they came out of Egypt. They will go through the wilderness and into the promised land. The vision of threes. Uh, Paul talks about these three, faith, hope, and love. Uh, when Paul describes the kingdom, he says, the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, this, in the Psalms, you find three levels of worship. You see thanksgiving, praise, and worship. Uh, in Romans, there's the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Uh, you talk about the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the position, there's prophet, priest, and king. Uh, so you just see these threes come up all over the place. God likes to work in threes. And we see that here in the tabernacle, with the outer court, inner court, and the, the holy place. When you look at the furniture of the tabernacle, starting out in the outer court, you have uh, the bronze altar. Uh, first of all, you have a bronze altar and a bronze uh, basin there for washing uh, and if you look on the metals, brass or bronze, people see symbolism in there as uh, specific of maybe judgment, something that is rustic or something that looks like it has been burned and has gone through uh, the fire. So the two outer court that deal with sin, basically both of these, the altar and, and the basin, they both deal with sin. You have the sacrifice for sin on the altar, and then you have the washing off of the sacrifice. You have the washing of sin in 
the bronze basin. Uh, the altar can be a picture of salvation. That is where sin is atoned for. Uh, the basin, you can find sanctification. That's our washing and our cleansing from sin. So the sacrifice for sin, our, our salvation, and our cleansing from sin, our sanctification. And those are outer court. You know, that's what happens to, to take care of sin in our lives for us. Through Christ's sacrifice, the cleansing of the Word, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And it brings us from outer court to inner court. It brings us the, the altar and the washing. And washing also can be you know, used for baptism as well. It can be a picture of baptism. So you have salvation and sanctification, sacrifice and cleansing that takes us from outside and brings us in. It brings us in to the inner court. In the inner court, you have the menorah, you have the lampstand, which was filled with oil. The lampstand can be symbolic of the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, Jesus also says, I am the light of the world. There are three Jesus's I am's that are connected here with the three uh, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. As the menorah was the only light, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then you have the table with the, the bread of presence, with the showbread. Well, bread can be symbolic of the, the word of God. It can be symbolic. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus also makes the statement, I am the bread of life, corresponding with the table of showbread. Then you have the altar of, of incense here. You have the altar of incense, uh, prayers and, and worship going up before God. So, you know, we see Jesus. What does he constantly do? He's constantly in communication with the Father. His great high priestly prayer that he prays in the Gospel of John. Him making prayer and him uh, interceding for his People. That's a, also a picture of the work of Jesus. It can be also symbolic of our prayers and our worship, our sacrifice of praise that goes up before God on the altar of incense. Uh, then you have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, is, that's God's presence. Man, you go in there, you're, in the, you're intimate with God. It is just you and Him. And I'm thankful that as Christians, the veil was torn. and We are in God's presence all the time, and He is in us and we can have an intimate relationship with the father we know him and he knows us and we can talk with him and we can be in his presence and, and feel his presence and there's this intimacy between us and god it's the ark is god's very throne room god told moses he said on the mercy seat between the cherubim that's where i will meet with you when we commune with god we do it in his presence on his seat of mercy uh, then you have the outer gate, the door. This is the other I am saying. The third I am saying was not in the outer place, but it was, or in the inner court, but it was at the outer gate. That was known as the door that you went through. Jesus said, I am the door. The thing about the tabernacle, only one way in. If you're going in, you're going through the door. Jesus says, I am the door. If you get in any other way, that's how thieves come in. So Jesus in John 10, he says, I am the door. If anyone else tries to get in any other way, they are thieves and they are robbers. And the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life. Jesus there in John 10, I'll just add this as a side note, Jesus in John 10 wasn't talking about the devil. That's not what he was talking about in John 10. Now, 
Can you call the devil a thief that kills, steals, and destroys? I have no problem with that. But Jesus was talking about all those in Israel that were trying to get in the kingdom any other way other than Jesus. And when they come in, they would be hirelings to the sheep. But Jesus, he says, you come in through the door. I am the door. Uh, so he is the way, the truth, and the life. Then you have the veil that was between the uh, holy place and most holy place. The veil is symbolic of Jesus' flesh. Now, we are told that uh, through Hebrews, uh, that is the flesh of Jesus' body. And we enter into the holiest place through Jesus. And then you have, again have the mercy seat, and the mercy seat, that, that's God's grace. When the blood is on the mercy seat, God looks at us through, through a lens of mercy and grace covered by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, and He sees us no other way other than that. That's our standing before Him. Uh, and then you have the metals uh, that was in the construction of the tabernacle, the brass. We talked about the brass, the judgment. Uh, here with the bronze altar and lever, I see that as the judgment against sin. You know, the Bible says that, that God condemned sin in the body of Jesus on the cross. Sin was condemned at the cross. Uh, judgment was brought against sin at the cross. Uh, silver, uh, many people see uh, silver as representative of redemption. Gold, they see gold as representative of deity uh, and blessing. Uh, and in fact, some of these you see... Um, wood, it would be made of wood, but overlaid with gold. Uh, the wood would speak of humanity. So part of that, see this humanity and the deity of Christ together. The precious stones, uh, blessings, gift from God's, uh, gift from the Spirit. Uh, there were 12 precious stones, again, on the breastplate of the high priest, you know, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. You could bring that over, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then you have the wood, the humanity cries badger skin or goat skin that was made for protection. It was not for beauty, it was for protection. Uh, ram skin dyed in blood, of course, red blood, substitution, atonement. Then you have the curtains made of fine linen, which speaks of righteousness. Uh, the colors were blue, that gives us a heavenly uh, color. Purple gives us a royalty color. Scarlet gives us a color of uh, sacrifice and blood, and white is purity. Uh, then you have the oil that was in the lamp, symbolic of you know, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, where they would anoint with oil, how we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And we could go on. These are just some of the major ones that we hit as far as some of the symbolism. But you can see how deep the symbolism can run when we get to the tabernacle. But the end of it all is it all points to Jesus. It all points to to His work for us. It points to our redemption and how we're taken from the outer court to the inner court where we fellowship with Jesus. And again, the, you know, you've got the inner court. You've got you know, the light of the world. You've got us being a light to the world. You've got us receiving the Word of God. You've got our prayers and our worship. And then you've got the ark where it's so intimate. So you know, the, the layers here go... Uh, deep. There's layers upon layers of how you can look at this and the symbolism and interpret it. Uh, but to me, and the main point, it all points back to Jesus. And it all goes back to what Christ has done for us. And it's all symbolic of God's presence with His people. And all of this is wrapped up in us. As Paul says, know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How through Christ's work, He has prepared us. 
He has cleansed us. He has purchased salvation for us so that his presence could live in us and we could be his walking and moving tabernacle here on this earth and how his church can be his, his temple, his tabernacle, filled with his presence, made perfectly for him to dwell in. And that's a powerful picture and symbolism